Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I am your once and future host, Troy Goodfellow. Uh, today we're taking a bit of a break from games to talk about game history and game literature. Uh, last month, uh, I guess the patron saint of Three Moves Ahead, Sid Meier, released his memoir, Sid, entitled appropriately Sid Meier's Memoir, A Life in Computer Games. Uh, because Meier's influence, of course, dominates the strategy space, it's only appropriate we take time to look at his book and his legacy. So to do that, we have compiled an expert panel. Uh, first joining us is freelance writer and regular panelist Rowan Kaiser. Hello. From Mohawk Games, our old friend and former intern, Soren Johnson. <laughs> hey, it's good to be back. And uh, from Paradox, our old friend, Johan Anderson. Hello there. So, Soren, I want to start with you because uh, you worked with Sid uh, at Firaxis. Uh, you designed Civ 4, worked on Civ 3. You spoke to Sid uh, a few weeks ago about his mm -hmm. memoir and uh, the like, and that recording is available online somewhere. We'll make that pop, we'll make, we'll tweet that out uh, on social media when the time comes. Um, so, you read uh, Meyer's book and have spoken to him about it. What do you think? Um, does the book, you think, capture the feeling of Sid and what you get from his conversation with him and working with him for so long? Uh, yeah, I thought I thought it was pretty interesting because I've, I mean, I've worked with Sid, although it's interesting, probably a lot of the time that I've spent with him uh, in like a professional setting has more often than not been a part of like interview tours or whatnot, right? Like we, we took a couple, uh, we couple took a couple trips through Europe, you know, on like the Civ 3 and Civ 4, uh, uh, promotional tours. And so I got to see, you know, after, you know, three or four of these, you know, I kind of got a sense of like, basically as a certain, he certain has, he gets asked a lot of the same questions over and over again. Right. So like inevitably you kind of end up with some just sort of patterns that you fall into for these type of things. Um, and, you know, he has a pretty sort of calm, sort of unflappable presence, you know, in interviews. And I wouldn't say they necessarily go, he does, and I think the downside there, especially for promotional stuff, is they don't tend to get too deep and you don't necessarily see a whole lot of his personality. And I felt like more of his personality came through in the book. Um, like Sid, especially, he has a, he has a really like kind of dry, you know, at times even biting sense of humor, um, where if you don't kind of know the context or something, you might not even notice that he's making a joke. Um, <laughs> and like I could see kind of like bits of that coming through the, the book. Some some even passages where I'm not sure even like most readers would understand necessarily <laughs> what he was he was talking about. Um, but I think you could just generally get that sense of him that, you know, he does like to kind of throw in kind of the odd aside or the the the, the well-timed understatement. Um, and uh, so that was that was kind of good to see. Um, and, uh, you know, beyond that, it was interesting that he took a bit. He took the he took the process very literally, you know, like each chapter is literally like uh, the next game, you know, that he worked on. Right. And, uh, you know, sometimes he goes into more or less depth depending upon kind of to some extent how much he wants to talk about that game. Um, but like it's, you know, it's it's interesting. We haven't actually seen a lot of books like this yet. Right. Yeah, I, I want to come back to the way he organized the book uh, in a bit. I do think it's an interesting way of structuring uh, the book and its themes. Uh, Johan, I want to go to you next because you and I are, you know, we're, we're close to the same age. You're a few years younger than me. So we, I guess, played a lot of the same games in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, many of the Meyer games, you know, Civilization, F-19, Pirates. Um, of course, you went into... 
uh, game design yourself and have become very successful at. I understand you have, uh, you have this bright future ahead of you uh, making uh, strategy games. Uh, what does the Meyer legacy uh, mean to you as a designer? And where does this book fit in, you know, helping you understand or make sense of Meyer's legacy? Uh, how do we start? It's, 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 <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's so many, like, if you're looking at it, like uh, uh, the, the amount of games he's made, it's, it's so wide. It's so big. There's so many different types of them. Uh, but, but the key thing that all of them binds together is that he's, he's a designer uh, of the same, of the same type that I want to be like a, uh, how do you put it? A tinkerer that kind of like makes his own games and tinkers with it and without, how do you put it? He does the stuff himself, not telling someone else to do something and then do it. That's the kind of like the design philosophy that I really, really admire. And I can't stop myself from doing the exactly same thing, even if I don't have to. So, and you can see that in, in all of Sid Meier's games, it's that, Basically, it's the type of you can see that it's basically it's been tinkering with it and testing it and doing it the core stuff on his own. That's sort of a, a long running debate in at Fraxis about like how to interface Sid into teams as you know projects get kind of bigger and bigger, you know, um, because uh, you know it is it is pretty you know like crazy to think over the course of his career all the different things he's gone through, like when he started making. When you when you started working on 3D games in, I guess, in the aughts, you know, kind of going back to pirates or not, in a sense, he was going back to 3D, right? Like he had a whole career making early, you know, early 3D games before he even got to, mm -hmm. you know, what we kind of think of as, you know, his his, you know, peak years, from, you know, from pirates through civilization. Right. And like, you know, the, 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 the breadth there is just is just kind of amazing. But, you know, but at at the end of the day, he, you know, spent a good 15, 20 years making games just largely in the driver's seat himself, touching, you know, every part of the game. And, you know, eventually just games kept getting bigger and that became harder and harder. And so, you know, I think, you know, Fraxis went through kind of a number of different cycles of like, okay, we're going to try to get Sid to more lead projects or, and then you kind of have the retrenchment of going back to like, well, you know, really the way the Sid works is he needs to do everything. You know, he needs to, he needs to do as much as possible he can himself. Right. And so, you know, they've, you know, you know, for now, or at least, you know, kind of the period I was more familiar with, you know, there was eventually a, essentially a bunch of like a couple engineers who main job was to kind of like create this sort of sandbox for Sid to work in. So he could preserve that, that style of, of work he did in the eighties and nineties as much as possible. You know, well, it's, it, it's pretty rare nowadays. It, it, it's a bit of a running joke in the early parts of the book where it's like, first they take music away from me and then they take art right. away from me. It's <laughs> like, he has to be a part of all of it. And he kind of jokingly says, oh, they're trying yep. to reduce me and put me in this box as a programmer um, yep. when he was used to doing it all. And I just yep. think that's a very, um, and as you mentioned, the book chapters, uh, later on in the book, as he gets further and further away from the games that bear his name, there's very little said about them. And they're just chapter headings, which I think right. is kind of a kind of a reflection of uh, the, I guess, the change in the nature of teams. Uh, right. Rowan, as a as as a as a game critic and as someone who is called 
Sid Meier's Pirates, the best game of all time. Um, <laughs> and I don't think, you know, and I think you could probably make a very good case uh, about that. Um, you have been going through the book and you've probably freshest on it since you've read it uh, just this past uh, weekend. Uh, where does, what was your reaction to the book as a critic and as a, someone who I think gets, I think what you get from strategy games is a little bit different than from the things that Johan and I look for. Um, I mean, as a, as a book critic, like I would say it's fairly slight, but entertaining. Uh, it's, uh, Sid took the life in computer games idea very, very literally. And that's, that's entertaining. And in a sense, it's like his games where he's, he's simplified all the parts that he thinks are what's going to be most interesting for the reader. Uh, but there's also some parts that are perhaps lacking some depth, like, he talks about how his son was born like as he was prototyping civilization. Um that's that's a lot. <laughs> like that's that is uh you know bringing in your lifetime achievement as you are bringing in your other initial lifetime achievement. Uh and like someone could really go into that and that's just not really his style in this book which is uh Probably not his style in real life, based on everything I've heard about the guy. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, you'll get something out of it if you enjoy the history of computer games and uh, Sid Meier's games in particular. But it's not it's not a super in depth look at like the grand psychology of the man who reshaped the genres that we know and love. Um, as a game critic, uh, mostly. Like at a personal level, like I would say like three of Sid's games are in like my Pantheon, uh, Gettysburg Civilization and Pirates. Uh, these are like games that help define me as, you know, a young player of games slash future critic and uh, seeing kind of how he thinks about those being also how I think about games was the most interesting aspect to me in particular, what he calls the, uh, the covert action, uh, rule, which, uh, he talks about in terms of the spy game he made between or kind of around civilization and after pirates, uh, where he feels like he didn't do a good enough job of kind of making, the distinction between the overall narrative and the individual mini games that you played like actually functional. And the rule he came up with was like, if you have two pretty good games going on at the same time, then you have zero good games and longtime listeners of three MA may recognize that this is a, a drum that I have been beating for a lot of the time here, where if you have like two distinctly different things, components of your game then one of them really has to be dominant and i usually use it for like XCOM or total war where the tactical side is dominant and that's why those games are great or that's not the only reason why those games are great but they're not they're not divided like the fantasy strategy games that we often talk about that have this tactical component that this kind of sits there and drags everything down um and so seeing that like sid meyer is talking about this rule that i have put together for myself after a lifetime of playing Sid Meier games, uh, 
was pretty entertaining. It reminded me of a couple years ago when I reread uh, Ursula Le Guin's A Wizard of Earthsea, which is her young adult fantasy novel or her initial one in the Earthsea series. And I realized that not only was this like where I got a sense of uh, what I thought good ethics were, but also my entire concept of good writing is like Ursula Le Guin just at her peak. And I was like, oh, now I'm seeing where I get all these like internal rules from. It's because I played the hell out of Pirates and Civilization for all my life. I, I was thinking what you said when you mentioned Pirates, it's the best game of all times. I could probably agree that it's a top three game, but it's also interesting is because you're saying that um, it's the example of where there's a plan. It's a, it's a bunch of mini games, said Myers Pirates. Neither of the mini games are really all that great. They're like, it's uh, you have the f- fencing thing. You have the going around on a map. You have a trading game, which basically menus and uh, you have the, there's a bunch of mini games, and neither of the mini games are great on their own, but together they create something. And so it's kind of like it's it breaks its own rule, which is kind of funny. Well, I think in that case, what it is is that the the what we would call now the fantasy of being the pirate or the adventure that he puts together is the overarching thing that holds it together. Uh, it's not that the mini games themselves are that fantastic on their own, but it's that they all go into supporting the overall feeling of this is your journey as a pirate through the Caribbean. Yeah. And that's the part that makes it, makes it really work together. Well, suspension of disbelief. Let me, let me jump into something here. Like yeah. the, with the covert action rule, which I think is, it is a very interesting to consider, especially considering that his own company is kind of like, has one of the sort of interesting, at least one of the counter arguments you have to deal with, with XCOM. Um, is, you know, this, he's been talking about this for a long time, but I think it's kind of like head spinning if you actually look at the context of when he kind of like believed this was a rule or he figured that, you know, COVID action wasn't really working. Like if you look at the chronology of his career, right? Like you're talking Pirates 1987, 1988, Red Road Storm Rising and Stealth Fighter. Oh yeah. Right? 1990, Railroad Tycoon and COVID action. 1991, Civilization. He made those six games in four years, right? Like, where was the how much? How long did he even work on Covert Action? Like six months, <laughs> right? Like, how did he get to the point where like he felt like this was like okay? Well, I've you know, I guess this is the thing for you know games that have too many parts. Like you know, I find it you know I I, I find it impossible to believe that he if he didn't just if he just spent two years on Covert Action he could have figured a way to balance it out, right? Like it's. It's just kind of like, I, I just don't know what to think about. Like, it's just a totally different way of making games. I, I don't know how it, it could have worked, right? Yeah, but back then, t- two years, you didn't spend two years on a game in the late 80s, early 90s. That's... Sure. Yeah. No, I I, I kind of quizzed him on this, you know, when I was interviewing him about, like, he also has that kind of, like, jaw-dropping aside at the end of the Railroad Tycoon chapter about, like, oh, we determined, like, the game was just a little too passive. So we determined we uh, we should put in some AI. So we, we we did AI in the last two weeks of the project, right? And <laughs> Been there, done that. It's, it's <laughs> and, you know, I asked him, I was like, well, you know, did you not, at some point, did you not just go to, you know, Bill Staley and say, like, hey, can we have maybe, you know, we're adding this pretty big new feature. Could we have maybe another month to work on it? And he said, like, well, the problem was, like, we just, you know, we were, we were out of space, right? Like, 
at some point, like back then, like you kind of drew the end line when you filled up the disk or you filled up the computer's memory, basically. So there were like these kind of like technical limitations that we forget about looking yeah. back on these type of games. It, it is funny that like the first half of the Pirates chapter is built around how cool it was that they turned fonts into clouds. And right. like that is that is really cool. I had no idea about that, you know, as a eight year old playing this game. Uh, but. It's also strange when you think about like what the legacy of Pirates is, it's weird to think of it in terms of it's this monumental technical masterpiece when it just seems like this simple little game that manages to get everything in the way it's supposed to, to continue on when, when he saw it as was a technical challenge for making his imagination actually appear on the screen. Yep. It's a, it's a brilliant piece of engineering. It's absolutely, I, I completely agree with you, what you said, Rowan. Sid Meier's Pirates, the original version is the best game ever made. <laughs> I have, I have so many fun <laughs> memories of it growing up and it, because it's like, it's the, it's it's the promise and the mechanics that work together that is basically defining what makes a great experience. Yeah, uh, I I actually don't know which version of it like has my love the most. I probably put the most time into Pirates Gold, which I think is the one that gets forgotten the most. But uh, yeah, they, they're all. I mean, they're all basically the same game, but they all basically work across a span of sixteen years and. Uh, yeah, I, I think the C64 tape version was the one I played the most because it waited like for like a long time loading and then you I would start pre-writing the stories. I think I still have like lots and lots of books of uh, or papers from 14-year-old Johan writing his pirate adventures <laughs> down. <laughs> that's, see, that's, that's a wonderful unintended consequence. Uh, the, the other thing, speaking of the technical limitations, is that like... We don't really think of Sid Meier as obviously like a flight simulator guy uh, when so many of his early games were built off of flight simulators. And like you can see that so much of how he managed to figure out the technical limitations, figure out ways around the technical limitations that he had to do in order to create these uh, great 80s flight simulators uh, like informed how he ended up creating, you know, so many of those games in such a short period of time um and that's I don't, it's that flight simulators were once one of the absolute dominant genres is something that occasionally gets forgotten and this is a really good reminder of not just like that that existed but also like how that manifested in uh the developers histories but they, they, that was kind of like the similar concept did, did you did you guys ever play f f19 stealth fighter yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah but, I but really enjoyed that. Because it was the entire world. You were like, the map of uh, Central uh, Europe uh, was one of the four maps. We were flying around. There were like, there were play, uh, Soviet planes in the Baltic, and there were like lots and lots of things happening on the map. And it felt like, at least to me, that it was a world. And I think that describes quite a lot of this, uh, of these games, that it was creating worlds, not just games. Yeah. Yeah, he yeah. had a bunch of. He did much stuff to go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead, go, 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 go ahead sir. 
Uh, I was to say, yeah, he did a bunch of stuff throughout, you know, you know, the Silent Service and Stark Eagle and uh, uh, Gunship, where you know, like things to give a reason why you were doing these missions, right? Even even back, I mean, I never played um, Solo Flight or whatever, but it was interesting to see the little thing where you know it was kind of competing with you know, flight simulator or whatever, which is a, was a completely aimless game. It was just a complete sandbox, right? And so he put in this little mail delivery, you know, uh, mini game thing in there, right? That that gave you a reason to actually play. And, you know, it's just interesting to think how much of his design philosophy was maybe is just like in his genes, maybe that he just couldn't, you know, he was always kind of looking for a way to make, to give give players a reason to to play the game. I mean, the, the idea of these, these, kind of open maps that he did in his flight sims, and especially in Silent Service, which was kind of an open world Pacific theater where you could, if you had the energy, you know, sail from Hawaii to uh, Japan and take whatever you saw along the way. But F-19 was because you'd have these very large maps and they'd have all of the airfields and all of the SAM sites. And, you know, for the time, I mean, it was kind of amazing. You could take your primary and your secondary target and on the way back, you know, just detour into Lithuania and take it a few more things. Oh, there's a tank factory. We'll just take that on the way back because that's in the map. That's there. I'm not sure if it's procedurally generated or randomly generated or whatever, but it definitely felt like this is a larger space. And we saw this especially, I think, in Railroad Tycoon. He doesn't talk a lot about this uh, in the game, in the, in the book. But my favorite thing about Railroad Tycoon is the player impact on the map. And sure. it's kind yeah. of how, if you brought a lot of steel into Des Moines, Des Moines would become, if that becomes your hub of traffic, Des Moines would become the big industrial town, not Pittsburgh or Chicago. That the player had, the player's focuses would determine, you'll be rewriting a history, just the railroad deliveries. And that's kind of a remarkable way and a remarkable forethought into what we do now in a lot of strategy games and how we can decide what our alternate history is going to be. This is kind of an alternate history just through an industry and traffic. And he doesn't talk about it in the book. And I kind of wish he had, because uh, that's kind that's a that's a very new thing when I saw it, that you were taking a real world map and transforming it and turning other places into metropolises and starving New York of attention. Um, that was a very cool thing. Yeah. And I wish you'd spent more time on that. You know, I, I think that Sid doesn't, you know, even though like, obviously he, he he's sort of aware of his position in the industry, but I don't necessarily think he has like a very good understanding about uh, like what kind of the story you just told. Because I, I remember that road taking too. I also thought that was one of the really cool things about that game. There was, there's very, I think, I think it was probably before SimCity or it, those games must come out very close together. I'm not sure, but you know, it was, you know, it was just a very, very amazing thing at that time. But, you know, I don't think Sid necessarily spent a lot of time dwelling on the games he made and what people were noticing that really stood out to them. You know, I think he just, he moved so quickly onto the next game that he just, you know, didn't spend much time looking backwards about like, you know, Oh, you know, he, you know, maybe he just did this, you know, one week, it just occurred to him to throw this thing in. And I don't necessarily think that like he spent a time, a lot of time thinking about like what the implications were of them um, because he just made so many games so quickly. Yeah, that's that's kind of a thing that I noticed in the book and wished 
I don't know about wished, but it, I think it was it was definitely a missing piece was that he very rarely talked about other people's games, except in very specific circumstances. Like he talks about SimCity as helping him believe that Railroad Tycoon would be like financially viable. Um, he talks about Danny Button's games. He talks about a couple other things, uh, but like he mentions that Microprose is also happens to be a publishing arm, but he never mentions like Master of Orion and Master of Magic um, <laughs> or XCOM. Yeah, uh, that's pretty amazing. There's, it's true. And like, there, you know, you're talking about how Sid Meier creates worlds, which, well, some other people were doing some pretty famous things in world creation, but I don't believe there's a single origin game mentioned in this time period. Uh, and like... It just seems like he is just narrowly focused on this is my interest. This is how I can turn my interest yeah. into a game. Let's go. All right. On to the next thing. Yeah. And, um, and I know I know he's aware that the civilization community is really big and he understands that like modding is important. But, you know, like, I, you know, it's it's not um, it, you know, he launched the civilization series, but it really, you know, I don't know what's the right analogy here or something, but like it, it really just took a life of its own very quickly. Right. Like, you know, he was the uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm struggling because I feel like there's a sci fi book that we have like a perfect analogy here of like, you know, the 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 God creator, whoever, who, you know, sends this thing off into the world and then like is very uninvolved after that. Right. Like, but whereas it instead, like, um, you know, you have really a whole army of people from other people, you know, people who you know, join Fraxis to extend, you know, the legacy of Civ to all of the fans and the people who have grown the multiplayer communities, the people who have done all the moddings and the people who have, uh, you know, it's just, it, it's, it became, you know, it kind of became its own, its, its own world. And, um, you know, like, you know, he, I think he understands how important it is just because it's still, it's still chugging along and it keeps getting bigger, keeps getting bigger and bigger. Um, but, you know, and, and I think it's kind of like, fortunate that he didn't necessarily feel like he had to control it um because you know civ rev is really civilization 2 right like he did all of civ rev civilization revolution right like that was that was absolutely his concept of like okay this is this is what i find interesting this is something that i you know i'd like to experiment with I find I find this version of Civilization really interesting, and it, it is a very interesting version. You know, it's, it's it's just it's very different from you know what kind of like the typical Civ audience is is looking for, right? Um, but you know, I think it's it's you know the Civilization franchise, you know, has you know it, it has a lot of hands on it at this point, right? Like it's 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 this thing that that kind of really is its own beast. Um, I can't be I mean, I mean, Ron, you made a point that I was going to make, and I'm glad you started. How this is, I mean, he calls it his life in computer games, but there really aren't a lot of other people in this life of computer games, and they're kind of like two different categories. There are the people he's worked with. There's Bill Seeley, who's the the organizer and managing man. There's Bruce Shelley, who's his partner in crime, his compadre, who understands what he's doing. There's Will Wright out there making stuff. That's kind of Will Wright's job. And there's a Danny Button Barry, who's kind of like the muse, the model, the person who's doing all this other great stuff right beside uh, Sid Space. And really, I think uh, she's kind of this, she's up there with Sid on my Mount Rushmore of strategy designers. Um, but his family, I mean, you mentioned that his, his birth of his son happens in a sentence. His family happened. There's, there's a couple of stories of going back to Switzerland that pop up. 
they're really not there. Uh, a few people, Af- Tim Train gets mentioned, Soren, you get mentioned, Ed gets mentioned, and just in a sentence. But mm-hmm. it is a sense that this is, that, I mean, no man is an island except for Sid Meier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, when when he gets out of microprose, I don't believe Bill's mentioned again, except maybe as, like, a memory. Uh, uh, so, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, I've never met Bill and uh, Bill Staley, and I've I've never heard of anyone at Firaxis meeting him. I mean, I, I assume he must be around somewhere, but like, yeah, I don't. I, I and I've never asked Sid like, "What's your relationship with Bill nowadays?" You know, like, just I I, I have no idea. Um, it's, but it's I mean, also, but I mean, if, if I if I were to write like my memoir mm-hmm. about you know, say my critical evolution or why I became the world's greatest PR person, I would probably mention more than five names. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I, I just and that, not this isn't an accusation. I just think it's a, it, but it kind of to let people know this is kind of the very narrow focus of the book. This is about Sid's relationship with the products he's made. Yeah, yeah. Like one one thing that I mean, I definitely stood out to me is that you know he mentions like how Brian Reynolds you know joined Microprose and his work on you know colonization and civilization two, uh, and then he, he mentions that he's working on Alpha Centauri. And then that's it. And yep. there's a big step there missing. <laughs> you yeah. know, like in the, in a, you know, sort of, a, and this is definitely not a tell all memoir, right? But like in a story of someone's life, you know, like there, you know, you have your ups and downs. And, you know, like uh, Fraxis had a, you know, a big traumatic moment, right? When like, you know, kind of half the company left to follow, you know, Brian as he founded his own company. And, you know, I, Brian and Sid are yeah. friends, you know, like I've, I've seen sure. them together, they, they have a good relationship. So, you know, there's nothing really contentious going on now, but I, you know, it, there must have, there must be a, you know, and I, I'm not sure if I ever even asked Sid directly because, you know, I'm just maybe too shy to do that, but like what he felt going through that, that period, but like it definitely, he didn't. He just decided not to address it at all. In the point that is such a very important part of the story. I mean, it's just it's, it's kind of conspicuous by his absence that you know the founding of big huge games and Brian striking out on his own and making games that are clearly inspired uh, by his work at Microprose. It, I mean, I, it's kind of it's an odd thing not to mention. At all, I gotta say, I'm not going to any depth in it because people might not be interested in business sure. stories. But I mean, to not mention it at all uh, is a curious omission. Yeah. Speaking of business things, just as a random aside, one of the things that sort of jumped out to me was that uh, EA, as a publisher, is treated as largely the good guys in this book. <laughs> Or not, not necessarily the good guys, but like usually a decent set of people who could be trusted to work with, which is generally not the reputation that EA has uh, acquired over this, especially those years. Um, I don't know. I just I just was entertained by uh, that Sid had managed to to succeed in that department, at least of uh, having a good working relationship with Electronic Arts when. A lot of game developers uh, found that that was maybe a bit of a poison pill. I I think Sid. I mean, uh, I think during the '90s, EA really was helpful to Sid um, in you know getting what getting exactly what he wanted to do. There was kind of enough of the old EA, EA energy where they were 
you know, still making original games and, um, you know, they hadn't quite turned into EA Sports at, the, at, at that point. Um, but I, I remember this one story uh, from from this period where when he, as he was leaving Microprose, you know, there was still a lot a lot of uh, negotiation over, uh, you know, how he was going to part with the company and, you know, who owned what and, you know, whether I think I think also like whether they could get him to keep, keep working on stuff for Microprose or not, like even that, you know, could Fraxis make games for Microprose or whatever. And so they had they had some sort of meeting like that. And apparently Sid showed up in, wearing an electronic arts sweatshirt. Um, and so that was kind of a, a sign that like, you know, he, that this, this was not going to happen. Um, so, uh, we've already mentioned his, uh, covert action rule. There are a few other rules and aphorisms, uh, that, you know, Myers become famous for, uh, that he goes into a bit. And the one he's most famous for is apparently something he's not sure he's ever said which is that a game is a series of interesting decisions. And he spends a couple of pages trying to figure out where he might have said this because he knows it's a contentious thing that's been debated and discussed uh, in gaming academia and game studies by game designers. And apparently he's not sure that it ever happened or if it did happen, it was a throwaway line at GDC. Right. Yeah, he does some pretty good archaeology on like where maybe this this quote came from. And uh, it's probably something that someone sort of essentially coined from stuff he said. So, you know, um, at this point, he's been it's kind of like been put in his mouth enough that I think he's basically owned it. Right, though. So yeah, it doesn't he, seem like it's super important whether he said it exactly this way or not. Right. It's also funny that he takes a page to go into like the obvious criticism, or at least obvious to me, which is like games like Guitar Hero don't right. actually have that. Yeah. And I think he gets it completely wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, I was also completely unconvinced by that as well. <laughs> like like that the, be... the fact that there are occasional choices in Guitar Hero does not mean that the choices are particularly interesting or yeah. the reason that pl people play the game. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Uh, yeah, that was uh, that was just an entertaining bit. Most of the other times when he goes into the the criticisms, I think that it's it's a lot more interesting. Uh, like when he talks about um, the sort of academic or critical criticisms of civilization as kind of a a Western idea of progress, and like, yeah, that is sort of natural for where the series came from, and that. Uh, a game requires some kind of lens and some kind of sense of progression. And that's, that's a, a, a way that makes sense for this kind of model, which, uh, yeah, I mean, that doesn't negate the criticisms of, uh, the idea of civilization in that way, but it does, you know, reframe them in a way that I think is helpful for understanding both the criticisms and why they did it the way they did. He comes out, he comes out very respectful, I think, of game studies and game criticism. They, 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 yeah. you know, they're off there doing their thing. He understands a lot of them came up playing his game, so it's not coming. They aren't coming from a place of malice or misunderstanding. He thinks that you know the game criticism and academic game criticism has its space and is of value, but it might not necessarily impact what he's doing, even if he finds it interesting. Yeah, I think he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to. He doesn't feel like he needs to argue it on their terms per se right like he's like i'm you know i'm not a game critic right like i'm i'm you know a game designer developer and you know like you know i find what you're saying you know interesting and i can tell you why we made decisions at the time but like i don't feel like i need to prove you wrong or anything yeah 
Uh, one of the other things I want to get your perspective on as designers, uh, Soren Johan, is what he calls uh, the double, I'm going to call a double or half rule. If there's a mechanic mm-hmm. that you like and you're not sure if it's working or not, double it. So double its impact or cut it in half. Can you go into what he's trying to say there? Um, I mean, I think some of that comes down to, you know, it's more about like how he develops, which is that it's about like rapid iteration, right? That you're, you know, you're, you're trying stuff out and you want to be able to make decisions based off of the changes you made. Right. So, you know, it's not necessarily that you're going to double it and leave it there, but what you're going to do is you're going to double something and then it might, make you realize something else about the game that you didn't you didn't understand before that you're like oh wow this this actually it's this one resource that is bottlenecking everything right and now the game feels totally different now that this is no longer a limitation or something um that's that's kind of the way i've i've interpreted it you know it, it's rare that rub, you know doubling or halving it just ends up giving you the right value you know right. it's more about you know the the design process is, is a process of like exploration and then and then again you know the fact that they were he was making all these games in like nine months means that there was not a whole lot of of you know iteration you know to, to go to go over um and uh you know i think that uh you know the um the 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 situation that uh, Sid is most productive in is when he has uh, when he's able to make games uh, quickly, iterate them quickly, and he has a small but captive audience that can give him quick feedback. Right. So not necessarily like, you know, what you'd see like in early access where you're throwing it out to like tens of thousands of people like where, where Sid works best is when he has like Bruce down the hallway, right? Where he, he, you know, I, I don't doubt that like Bruce had like a, a new floppy on his desk every morning. Right. Um, and, you know, Sid would, you know, roll in later in the day and like want to talk to him about it. I, I saw that firsthand and how he developed pirates and especially civilization revolution. Um, you know, there was, you know, at least me- there was like a, a standing weekly meeting where a lot of people would go to where he was, he was just, you know, pulling feedback from, you know, all the people who were like actively playing the game. You know, I know that like Jake Solomon, like was like a very active part of that. Like he would, you know, pretty much always go. And like, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't working on that game per se, but like Sid was doing a lot based off of, uh, you know, stuff he, he would hear from people at those, at those meetings. But that, that's also the most efficient way to work though, in that, because if you're, if you want to uh, quickly iterate on something and do something, uh, you can't throw it out to 10,000 people because you get so much noise and you need to hand- yeah. have people handle the feedback and all that. If you have people that uh, that you can talk to and understand what you're talking about and actually look at it, that's absolutely valuable. It's so enormously cool to work like that. Yeah, I'd be curious how it works for you guys at Paradox because um, you know, for you know, old world the game working on right now, we have a we have a public Discord, which is you know pretty active, and you get a lot of feedback there, and it comes from all over the place, and you know it's hard to necessarily weigh it. But we also have a private Discord, which has which has people who I've worked with since Civ three on it, actually, you know, people just out all over the world, and so I know like exactly where these people are coming from i know what type of player they are so like i know exactly like when they say something i know you know i can i can read between the lines i can understand quickly like what you know what what they're experiencing yeah well we have the internal slack uh, which is like for all the companies i don't know how many people who are like 700 or something so it's a huge mm-hmm. amount of channels so it's that's kind of like being public with things so uh, i tend to use like small design channels and with people that i know are 
that I know like giving feedback and, mm-hmm. and, and that you can talk to. But well, everyone works differently. But as you say, having people that you worked with a long time, personal connections is very, very important in getting the feedback you need. It's not necessarily the best feedback you can get objectively, but it's the feedback that's best for you as a designer. And it, if I understand correctly, that's how he operates. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that, that's right. Especially since he says he doesn't do design docs. No, but no. The sign, the sign documents is the abomination of evil. It's the the thing. <laughs> no, it's 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 the worst shit. Oh, sorry. It's like it's the things that happens when you when companies grow big and you need to like tell people about what you're going to do, etc., and so on. Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, the sign documents are like you write ideas and like okay, I want to do this, I want to do that, and I do not really like design documents at all because the problem is that you have to maintain them and there's no design that this or idea as i view it everything that's just written before you implement it it's just an idea that survives the contact with the development yeah i mean one thing that just you know kind of like made sense to me as i was reading through the book is like you know i was just amazed at how many times he said things that just lined up just perfectly kind of with the way i i you know look at look at the games look at game development look at you know, my, my general philosophy, right? Like things like, yeah, like there, you know, there, there's basically like, there's basically no point to design documents for, for strategy games. Um, and, uh, you know, there, you know, things like feedback is fact, right? Like he has this, this great, uh, little, little segment or segment where he's talking about how, like, if, you know, people, you know, you can't ever, you know, explain to someone why they weren't enjoying something, you know, you think he says, you know, you can't go up and say, no, 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 you just didn't, you just didn't realize that you were having fun. You know, um, and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, there's just a certain, there's a certain perspective that, you know, I think a lot of strategy game developers share and like, you could really feel it coming through with him. It's, it was just so fun where it's like when this book was, uh, there was this excerpts with, uh, published online something. And we had this like Slack channel at work where people were commenting and all the people mm-hmm. going like, yeah, design documents are like just useless or like all the game directors and lead designers and all of those because it's like the only people that are defending them are or want them are basically product managers and the QA right. leads and so on so I can imagine it's the same at the Firaxis that like oh uh, yeah uh, you have this game how does it work can, can we test it when when is it ready and those people get like panicky about lack of design documents yep he also has some great sections on how, like, you know, no one will ever be able to view AI unfairly, uh, right? Like, you know, there's there's kind of like no, at, at the end of the day, there's kind of like no real point in necessarily making a a fair AI. It you know, it, it all comes down to player perception, right? Like, if a, if an AI is like obviously you know cheating, that's 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 obviously a you know a big issue. But you know, you're never going to get any points for the AI, you know, following all these specific things that the player isn't isn't aware of, right? Like, you know, when um, you know, when the, you know, when the AI, you know, gets that, you know, 10% hit, you know, something's gone wrong. But like, if you get four of them in a row, well, it's because, you know, you're a, you know, you're a superior player and <laughs> you're clean living and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, and pe- pe- people do not understand statistics. I mean, that's yeah. what it comes down to. And it, even if it's not an AI thing, it's a lot of it's just a perception thing. And it's, yeah. I, I mean, Civ Rev and XCOM both had this problem. And the Civ Rev, pro- the Civ Rev solution was just to fudge it. 
And yep. the X the, the XCOM solution is to that yeah, you're still one percent dead. Which yeah. is I guess uh the hardcore way of doing it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we fudged it in Civ 4. So anything over yeah. 95% was just yeah. 100%. You know, there's just, yeah. there's, there's uh, no good. I, I, good I don't know how many times I have debates for the years online about random, how it works, explain to people statistics and so on in various. <laughs> as, you say, as you say, Troy, people do not understand statistics and probability. They yeah. do not. He also threw some interesting shade at adventure games, um, which I didn't necessarily <laughs> oh, yeah. didn't necessarily expect, but like very much matches up with my like design philosophy. I actually thought the way he phrased it was really well put. That like the problem with an adventure game is there is is you know exactly one exactly one right answer, which is bad, but that there are infinite wrong answers, which is even worse. Right, like that's that's the actual problem. I think um, that might be the only time you actually got mean in the entire book. <laughs> yeah yeah i didn't yeah <laughs> but it's not wrong that's the problem yeah yeah i mean it was like it's kind of like it's like yeah that's that's a great way to put it um and also goes down to like how there's certain types of puzzle games i just cannot stand whereas something like like uh is it opus magnum or magnum opus right like where there's uh just you know there's sort of infinite ways better or worse ways to solve a problem is like that's great you know um whereas the kind of like the witness is the opposite of that right um much less interesting to me. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's a philosophy that I think, oh, I have espoused many times before is that I like, I like to work within the gray areas. Mm -hmm. um, and that's uh, adventure games tend to focus on finding weirder and harder and more niche ways to uh, eliminate those and make the, the good answer be something, I don't know, logically incoherent or uh just strange or deceptive or manipulative and uh like i really want to like the narrative form and i often do but it can come at the cost of actually enjoying the games themselves they yeah. haven't really progressed since infocom games in the late 80s or early 80s whenever they did them those well, it was really kind of an arbitrary accident that for some reason we thought adventure games meant narrative plus puzzles, right? Like that doesn't yeah. really that doesn't really make sense. Um, well, he mentioned that the Pirates uh, was named the best adventure game right. of the year, and that is because before there were all of these genres, computer gaming world had like two genres: action adventure and simulation strategy, and that was how computer gaming world divided up its categories. Uh, so you had to fit into one of those. Uh, and Pirates just was action adventure and not a simulation strategy. And that's just how everything fit. Um, and then a thousand flowers bloomed. And now we have a lot more precise understandings of what games are. But even now, yeah, when we think of adventure... We? Well, yeah, well, no. We, we, we have we, a lot more options. I don't know yeah. if we actually have... But, 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 but when we think of adventure game, we think about we do think about things like are in the legacy of the solve a puzzle, have a conversation. We think like Disco Elysium, which is really not which is not an adventure by any definition. It's a philosophical treatise. That's considered that's considered <laughs> an adventure game. Whereas if you were to release pirates today, no one would consider that an adventure game, would they? Well, it depends. You know, you still have this uh 
you still have this division in dice, which is, you know, like the, yeah. the most old fashioned of the the video game award groups, uh, which has like a distinction between adventure and action adventure, yeah. which uh, is seemingly nonsensical, but pirates would probably fit somewhere in it. Um, um, action so. RPG, kind of. You're leveling up yeah. your character only in, yeah. gold, only in gold and titles, but you're leveling it up or advancing your character. So I would put in the same category as, as Diablo. No. Yeah, they have, I mean, it's funny you mentioned it because they also have strategy and simulation as one category for them. And those are not the same things. In, in, in my world, as a designer, they're actually opposites, but okay. You know, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily <laughs> agree. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't expect you to agree. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, it's, it's like, but, but then again, I absolutely hate genres or the definition of genres. I think like an, a game experience, I don't like... I loved how it was in the back in the old days where like you didn't categorize games. It was just a games. It was an experience and it was not slotted in. This is a turn-based strategy game and turn-based strategy games work exactly like this. Yep. I, I loved the uh, And that ties back to St. Mary's games because a lot of the, his... Uh, the great... You mentioned the six games that were uh, mm-hmm. at his... I don't want to say peak about someone who's still living and still creating. I mean, his peak so far, maybe. Um, All of them are completely different. And I don't know what category should you really put all of them in. Yeah, I mean, there were no... I mean, 4X wasn't a term back then, right? I mean, it... uh, So it... uh... Yeah, I mean, he was, that is really interesting because he was kind of working in a time, we're talking about genre, but he was kind of working in a time in many ways before genre. And, you know, I think it was to his, you know, to his benefit that like he didn't have to, he kind of didn't have to deal with that. He was also someone who tended to avoid doing sequels. Mm -hmm. Um, He, you know, he made a whole lot of the most, I mean, he made a lot of flight sims in a row, Uh, but he may, he was the lead on, you know, one of the civilizations um and he was off doing something else he didn't do a second covert action and try to make it better he didn't go down the line of making tom clancy stuff um which he could have had a very nice career just making tom clancy uh knockoffs because red storm rising isn't a bad game um and let's see he knocked all of these out very, all these games very quickly very different from each other and also not necessarily connected to each other. After Gettysburg, he makes Antietam. There, there, that's probably a sequel right there. And he might have wanted to do a Waterloo game, but he moves on and does something else instead. Uh, is... I, like how, I like how he doesn't mention that a Waterloo game did get made. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I can see the designer of that game, like, you know, ripping the, <laughs> ripping the book right when it happened. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God, uh, you're right. I forgot about that. By uh, the way, uh, go ahead. Finish it off. No, go, go ahead. Um, so, you know, like that's that's totally true. And uh, it, I think it's really interesting because it wasn't just necessarily him like the, the uh, we've talked a lot at Fraxis about like kind of this, this interesting Civ 2 story, which is that back then sequels were seen as a risk, like something that was like a really bad mm-hmm. idea. Right. And it's so it's so far from where the industry is nowadays that it's hard to put yourself in that mindset. Right. But like they really had to like kind of like twist some arms to get Civ 2 made at all, right? And even though it was made, you know, the company 
you know, basically told them, like, we don't think this game is going to do very well. You know, like, sure, Civ, sold, Civ 1 sold a million copies. We think Civ 2 is going to sell, like, 30,000 copies. So, you know, we're not going to give it any marketing. We're just going to give you the shoestring budget and, you know, good luck, right? And, uh, like, that, it's just another one of those things where, you know, you, re, you, know, you, see, you see it in the book. He talks about that some. And, you know, it's like the, the industry is yeah. just kind of almost unrecognizable from, from that. I period. don't know. I mean, he, he says that, but is that really true? I mean, we'd already had, you know, a Lord of the Realms 2 and a Starflight 2, and there are all kinds of twos out there in the industry. People were well, making, that was pe the... people were making sequels like before Civ 2. And sure. I mean, and I, I, and I'm sure that they weren't making them some of them because they loved them, wanted to make them better. I'm sure some of it was because they thought, Oh, people bought the first Starflight. Let's get another Starflight yeah. out there. Well, maybe uh, maybe best put it this way. This was the conventional wisdom inside of Microprose. Okay. And can't necessarily say the Microprose was known for making the best business decisions. So, you know, <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't necessarily make maybe it doesn't actually mean all that much in the long run. Um, but certainly sequel, you know, certainly franchises is is something that has developed over time to be like right. kind of like the way the industry survives, you know, year on year, year after year. Uh it it depends on the genre too. Like, and this is a, a thing to go back to what was said. Like, at some level, what Sid was working on was creating new genres or formalizing genres. But also, like, he talks about how he was being pushed to keep going back to flight sims. Like, that's that's right. straight up genre work there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's that there were like a different set and a narrower idea of genres, and I don't think we felt like we had covered the entirety of potential game experiences in the way that maybe we feel closer to now, which obviously sounds ridiculous to say, but uh, like, you know, one of my basic theories of uh, how games have worked is that like around the mid to late nineties, we sort of formalized all of the genres that we tend to work with today with only a few small exceptions. Um, yeah, you're probably right that like the right way to think of it is that at Microprose in the 80s, they had the same conservative philosophy that publishers have always had, which is like we should keep doing the thing that works. Right. Right. And that, that didn't come across the sequels, but it's basically did. Right. We just want more military sims. Right. And right. But the reality was, as Sid must you know definitely realize, whether intuitively or explicitly or whatever, was that there was way more open space out there to be, you know, settled you know, then, you know, would make, you know, like it's, it's, you know, it just made more sense to do that than to keep making the same yeah. thing. Like, and I know this is something that Troy and I have talked about on some of our history oriented shows was that like the idea of the strategy game is only like starting to become formalized in the era where civilization is released. Like this is, there, there is a space called strategy and it's, kind of just like this big old bucket that you can dump a lot of things that make you think strategically into. Mm -hmm. And that bucket is not really well segmented or de defined, but it does clearly fit something like civilization. And then after civilization comes out and as some other uh, subgenres start becoming more popular in that time, and there are probably technical reasons for this as well, because uh, you start seeing the God games becoming formalized in the same time period, and then real-time strategy games a couple years later when the technology allows those to functionally exist well. Um, tycoon games, obviously, uh, start becoming a specific thing. Uh, so Sid is managing to work in this period where it's maybe not genre as a whole, but it is the genre he's become 
best known for yeah. uh, because in large part it was, you know, an unexplored space yeah. or a not not explored and formalized and settled space. And he uh, planted some of the biggest flags there. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. He has this kind of weird lost year in the 80s where he kind of spent some time making computerized versions of, of war games, essentially, um, which is like maybe intuitively he kind of like wanted to make strategy games, but that's kind of like that was the only frame he could think of at the time to to do that stuff in. Yeah, it was the, yeah. those, those were, the, that was the land-based strategy game genre before the late 80s, early 90s. Strategy games were war games and occasionally... I mean, if Chris Crawford stuff and right. uh, some other uh, big war game creators uh, in the uh, early 80s uh, doing some fun, fun and interesting things. And then the late 80s, uh, early 90s, you get in a very quick run. You have uh, SimCity, Civilization, Populous and Dune 2 pretty much inventing what the next 30 years of strategy games is going to look like. Right. Um, yeah. So you, you have you have this this golden age that he just plops himself in the middle of, and he invents you know the tycoon game with railroad tycoon, which is the business simulation. Though there were stock market simulations before that, railroad tycoon adds the railroad building and the stock manipulation, and the city builder. It's this beautiful, beautiful, elegant game. Um, and if I was to be put on the rack, I might even call that my favorite Sid Meier design, if not my favorite Sid Meier game. Um, so it, it is just a straight fertile time, which is, you know, the, the invention of strategy games in that period, though, yes, the genre exists before you go back to utopia with the Intellivision, if you want to go way, way back and do that. But really the invention of the categories is, uh, Meyer and Wright and, 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 and Molyneux making stuff right in that game period. And it's, I'm sure it was, it was an exciting time to be a university student, who, yeah. who could survive in only four hours sleep. It was a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful time. Um, yeah. But but polymaths like this are like, there's no way this can happen again, right? Yeah. I have a distinct memory of the first time I saw Civilization in the, I guess I had somehow completely missed that it existed. Just I saw it in the, uh, in the university bookstore, like my first week at, at school. And, uh, and, there's just this thing where I, you know, I saw it. So I was a Sid Meier game. So I was about the history of the world. And like, it somehow it wasn't surprising. It just, it was, I was just kind of like, yep, that this makes sense. Right. Like, obviously I bought it immediately. Right. But like, it was, it just seemed like this was the natural progression of things. Like, of course, this is, this is where things were heading. Yeah. I mean, uh, Meyer didn't, doesn't tell the story in the memoir, but he's told me, I'm sure he's told you that uh, Danny Barry was working on a civilization yep. type game. Yeah. Uh, around the same time, and then she ended up doing something else. Yep, and yeah. he kind so of was, jumped uh, in. Yeah, so was Chris Craw Crawford. Like you know, right. basically like three of you know three of the sort of the best strategy ish you know, developers of the eighties. They were all trying to like tackle that topic, right? And you know, for whatever reason, like uh, Crawford writes about this some, um, and he says, you know, the reason why Sid was able to do it is because he was just the one who was least afraid to like, just pare stuff down and throw stuff out that wasn't necessary. Um, <laughs> you know, because, you know, Civ 1 is in many ways, it kind of actually a very simple game. Like oh, if, yeah. when, when you play it again, um, it's pretty kind of remarkable. But people just kept for a long time, that became the model. And instead of people making their own civs, they tried to make, they're making their own versions of Civ. They tried to make kind of copies of Civ. 
So I, I think it takes another decade before people start exploring the civilization space in ways that aren't take a set there, build a city. So it would have been interesting if Crawford and Barry had pursued their own vision. Sure. And we, yeah. had, and we had competing versions of what a grand strategy 4X type game would have been instead of waiting 20 years and getting things like uh, Endless Legends, Europa Universalis, and other competing uh, imaginations of what a uh, strategy game could look like. Um, I think it would have been, I think, but I, I I don't know, maybe they thought there was no point in competing with Meyer uh, commercially. There probably wasn't any point commercially, but I part of me misses that unfollowed path, that evolutionary sure. dead end that two geniuses did not pursue yeah. uh, something they should have. It's, it's a good question because obviously there are a lot of ways to make a game about the history of the world, right? Yeah. And, you know, I still feel like it's definitely kind of like somehow still an unexplored space, certainly compared to, say, sci-fi 4X games, for example. Uh, I don't really need any more of those. Thank you very much. I, I, I'm just think, uh, thinking of when, when you're talking about the variants, like the difference in strategy games, and I was going back to... Uh, balance of power compared to uh, civilization. And I realized when you're talking about the newer games, uh, yeah, Endless Legend or European Solids or whatever, uh, they are so much closer to uh, civilization that I don't think they are more like children of civilization than something new evolutionary. It's like, it's so hard to... The the other paths n don't have any like children, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> they they, they yeah. never they never happened. They're just like they're completely gone. Yeah, yeah. It's even infected like board games, right? Like you think of you know, through the ages, which is really like a board game, uh, you know, of the game Civilization, right? Yeah. Like, you know, it's 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 that mm -hmm. you know, like how can like. And there's, you know, been other better, worse versions of it, right? Like the official ones haven't done as well as all the other people's versions to kind of like reinvent it uh, or not reinvent it, to like translate it. The industry is so full of evolutionary dead ends that I think it's someday I'm going to, when I retire, if I can ever afford to retire. You're going to write a blog post. Yes. I'm going to write. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that, that might come sooner. I might get my blog redesigned uh, this month. Um, that... Uh, you look at the legacy of, you know, I mean, something like uh, Frog City's Imperialism, for example. Sure. Okay. That is That's a game that is brilliant and has had next to no impact uh, on the course of Imperialism. Victoria is probably the only game I would think it has some uh, relationship to because it does have inputs of products uh, and a rudimentary trade system. But, you know, it's... Generally, it's not, even though everyone speaks fondly of it, I don't see a lot of people asking people, people as you said, Sort, everyone's making spiritual successors to Master of Orion. Where's my <laughs> spiritual successor to imperialism, all right? <laughs> that's the one I really want. Yeah, and I, I think doing spiritual successors to a game that's like 30 years old or 20 years old is really not always working that easily because yeah. it's like either you make it too close and Let's face it, uh, a lot of like the games back then weren't... There's a reason why we were able to make games in the 90s for in like less than a year of, on one or two <laughs> people because they're like... Uh, we, ha we had an EU 8-hour stream yesterday and I was forced to replay European Solace 2 
um, it had not aged well when it comes to UI and mechanics. And I think it's the same if you're looking at like uh, Master Ryan. It's a really, really crude game. Um, if if you're looking at similar games from them, is that I mean, even comparing Civilization One to uh, uh, Civilization Six, it's like yeah, there's a lot of common stuff, but Civilization Six is like enormously more complicated and more a better UI and better at every point. Uh, and so it's a super hard to make a spiritual successor to a game when you are not experienced in making those types of games. And I think that's super hard. I don't, I don't know how people can make... I've never seen a sp- something that started as a spiritual successor to something and it's turned out great because it's, yeah, I don't know how to do it. Of course, the ironic thing here is that Sid Meier did design one of the games that literally fits into any generation, and that's Sid Meier's Pirates, uh, which <laughs> we have seen manifest, and I would like to see manifest again. It's been 17 years for Axis. <laughs> waiting. Yeah, well, uh, uh, there's a copy of Sid Meier's Pirates that uh, is super in, inspired by it. It was released like 10 years ago called or 12 years ago called Mountain Blade, which is basically pirates on a horseback. <laughs> sure. No, but what right. I'm saying is like, there's yeah. a lot of those games that have taken inspiration of, of pirates and are that have evolved and made some things better and some things yeah. worse, etc., but if you're going back, now we're diverging and talking imperialism and other and Maserian, it's super hard to uh, I, look at someone else's game type and making something 20 years later as a spiritual copy. Yeah. Well, I, I would. I, I was uh, mostly going back to where you had started that thought and not where you ended it with. Uh, but it does. It has always fascinated me that pirates is something that just works wherever you put it yeah uh and that's you know clearly a feat of game design that's like literally what you want to game to an ideal an ideal form of game design is that like yeah this could be on any generation with any level of graphics and it seems to work yeah i uh i would also coincidentally throw <laughs> if i had to choose the best game of all time i also would probably pick pirates um but the way i would probably think of it compared to civilization is um you know, although Pirates may be the better game, Civilization is by far the more influential one. But it's, I think we might be better off if it was if that was reversed. Um, <laughs> I, I, to, to be honest, I think that from my perspective, uh, in my philosophy when it comes to designing games, I think I've been more influenced by Sid Meier's Pirates than Civilization. Yep. It, what, what, part, what part of your philosophy? Yeah. yeah. Uh, suspension of disbelief, believable worlds, because... Civilization is more of a board game. It's brilliant. I played it to pieces. I love it. And it's top 10 of all time, some of my favorite games. But in Pirates, there's this world. You have this like ships moving about. Uh, you feel like you are the pirate and you have this like uh, ships moving about and you and you make this connection that you, at least I did in my mind, that this feature A and this feature B they are creating a feature C that only exists in my head. And this is something I always want to create in my game. I want to throw out all this, like uh, the surge of small 
mechanics that fits together and creates an illusion that it's far deeper than it actually is. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, I mean that's the big difference between civilization and, and you know EU, right? Like if I had to, I could write down all the rules for Civ One, right? Um, but that's you know that's impossible for Europeans versus right? Like that, and that's not the goal either, right? And it's it's you know it's it's an important and it's a very important aesthetic choice design wise because it leads to a very very different experience. Yeah. That reminds me of what, what Troy was talking about, the war games that Sid was making that end up being more like toys than games mm-hmm. uh, because he was interested in having them be like the simulation, which is sort of a thing that has uh, we've talked about a lot on the show about how civilization has moved away from that, especially in the past decade or so. Uh, I just thought that was an interesting, I don't know, juxtaposition between where, where the strategy games from... Uh, where that level of strategy games might have started and then where they have kind of gone to end up and uh, would be interested in uh, hearing Sid talk about what what he what he gets out of the modern civilizations uh, right. within that, which is not to say they're bad. I have, you know, I my aesthetic preference is more for the, the simulation idea than the uh, kind of uh end game focused direction that they have gone but i definitely know plenty of people who very much enjoy that so that is uh it's not a bad thing inherently it's just uh one that is somewhat different for me so yeah that was yeah an an interesting little aside i thought before we wrap up any uh final words or thoughts on meyer or the book sorry um I mean, it's it's a good read, right? Like, I think it's really enjoyable. I, I have a hard time believing anyone who didn't play, like, uh, you know, a bunch of Sid Styles games and is interested in the industry wouldn't, wouldn't uh, enjoy it. I also think it was, uh, I really liked how for, um, you know, kind of for young developers or, you know, people who are maybe thinking of getting into the industry, I thought it was really nice that Sid included kind of a couple chapters to explain that, you know, even before the Fable meeting, you know, kind of in the Las Vegas arcade between him and Bill, like in reality, he had actually been making games for many, many years, right? Like if if it's if it's a part of you, it's just something that's you're you're gonna find an outlet for it, you know. And, you know, he to some extent he got lucky, but also like it's just something that, you know, like he was he would have never stopped making games. Johan. Well, I I just loved the book because I, I I really recommend people reading it because it's like it explains so much of the history of the most important some of the most important games in I would say in our culture and mm-hmm. seeing his uh, a little bit uh, what's it called he could have gone way more in depth with like explaining his philosophies and so on for people if they wanted to learn more but it touches on some really really good principles for people that want to learn how to make games Rowan I I feel like I've said most of most of my reactions but yeah it was a, a nice breezy read that could get you some nice uh insight into where we got how we got to where we are and uh, how some of the best games around were uh, were put together or what what the designer thinks was important about how they were put together and yeah I think there's a, a lot of interesting stuff in there and it's not not going to uh, not going to take a month to read like the last book we did for the show <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I'd also 
if, if I can jump in, like, I also like, you know, thinking, thinking about hearing, you know, like what, what you put down, you know, in this book, I don't think it's, it's interesting what it says about where the industry is, because I hope that, I hope that there's other designers who do that. This becomes more frequent that people do this, because I think a book like this will be, even though it's pretty breezy, I think mm. it still is, will be valuable for the historical record, right? That like he take the time to actually say exactly what happened in his own, in his own words, right? Like there's, there's a lot of books on video games, but they're pretty much all like various secondary sources, some of which disagree with each other. Right. And um, like, it's, it's really great to just have Sid explain exactly what, what he experienced and what he was doing and why. Um, it's, yeah, it's really, it's a very quick read uh, in a time where in a year it's been very hard for me to focus and read a book. I blitzed through it in a few nights. It is a great trip down uh, both memory lane, and I think it should be an inspiration also to think on a lot of uh, independent uh, designers who often work on short iterative time, how much can be done uh, if you have an interesting idea and don't, st and to, you know, follow your star, follow your ideas uh, and be creative and find creative solutions. Uh, Mr. Meyer, if you're listening, love to have you on the show to talk about G G Gettysburg which is just an absolutely fantastic game. Uh, I wish I could, I wish someone was still selling it so I could play on Win 10 because <laughs> it is an absolute uh, glorious game. Uh, thank you for listening to Three Moves Ahead. Uh, you can, we are still on the Idle Thumbs Network and you can find us on SoundCloud or at threemovesahead.net. Uh, if you would like to thank, excuse me, this show is supported by the generosity of many of our donors on Patreon. You can donate to us at patreon.com slash 3MA. If you sponsor us at a certain level, you will have access to our what Rob calls our super secret Discord, uh, where we will sometimes talk about and even plan to play uh, strategy games. It is a fun group. It is a small group. Uh, full of opinions and thoughts, and we are there. Uh, thank you for listening, and on behalf of Soren, Johan, and Rowan, good night and goodbye. Oh, and this is being produced by Liana Schaefer. Blah. I hate the exit. <laughs> you did it, Troy. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, we're done. Cool. <laughs> <laughs>